Hi everybody, it's Steve Weir, Grace Point's Pastor of Arts and Communication, and I'm here to say welcome, or welcome back, to the Grace Point Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or on our YouTube channel. Feel free to check out our website for all the latest information about everything going on here at Grace Point. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. Good morning, everybody. Um, you know, one of the great questions is, who decides my destiny? Who decides my destiny? Some people conclude, I decide my destiny. It's kind of the Invictus approach to life. Do you remember that poem, Invictus? Some of you probably learned that when you were uh, in school. It ends, it's, it's the idea that life comes at me, but it's not gonna get me down. And it ends with, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So, so some people conclude that, like, I decide my destiny. Other people go to the other extreme and say, fate decides my destiny. And I really have very little to say about that. We might call that the victim approach to life. You know, life just comes at me, it happens, and there's just not a whole lot I can do about it. Those are two completely opposite perspectives. Interesting that both of those words have the same root, so you word nerds can think about invictus and victim and how that might go, go together. But both of those perspectives neglect to incorporate God into the picture. So what if we put God into that scenario, what does that do to these conclusions about our destiny? Well, I decide my destiny doesn't work if God is in the picture, because if we look at scripture, we see that God has way too much influence on the happenings of, of humanity and in the earth. And an example of that, we saw earlier in Romans, just a few weeks ago, Romans 8, 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So God is intervening in humankind and, and in our existence in a way that doesn't allow us to say that I just get to decide everything on my own. But the, the flip side of that, if, if, we, if we substitute God for fate and we say, well, God decides everything, that doesn't work very well with scripture either because we see way too many commands in scripture that tell us what role we need to play in, in life and that it, it seems to indicate that we have some significant agency in, in our lives. And so an example of that is coming up in Romans uh, when we get to Romans 12, verse one, where Paul, after Paul has spent all of this time talking about all of this theology and what God has done for us and what God has done to uh, intervene in our lives and make salvation possible for us. After all of that, he says, now I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And then the rest of the book of Romans is an unpacking of that 
verse of what does it look like for me to present my body as a living sacrifice. And there's all these commands, all of this practical stuff. If you've been with us in studying Romans and you're like, Where, when are we getting to the everyday stuff? It will come at the end of the book. But there's a lot of that and there's a lot of commands for us to obey. So there must be some kind of agency that we have in the choices that we make. So it leaves us with the question, who decides my destiny? I know many of us in this room, many of us watching online have loved ones who have not embraced faith in Christ. And so we might ask the question, did God predestine you to have faith in Christ and not those people that you love? I mean, does, does God's sovereign predestination basically decide everything in life? Do our decisions really mean anything? The way we answer those questions determines the way we live. And so we can either live out a Christian version of Invictus where we, we work really hard and we feel the weight of everything hanging on us, or we might live as a Christian victim and just feel like, you know, it, it really doesn't matter that much what I decide anyway, God's just gonna have his way. Okay, we're gonna be diving in deep to these questions this morning. I hope you ate your Wheaties because this is not like a summer layback and just kind of let it wash over me kind of message. Like we're gonna do some work this morning, all right? So I hope you're with me on that. Get a Bible. Uh, if you don't have one with you, get one that's on the seat near you and turn to Romans chapter nine. It's gonna be really, really helpful for you this morning if you are looking at the scripture in front of you. And we're actually gonna be turning, we don't always do this, but we're gonna be turning to several scriptures here this morning. Romans 9 is on page 1046, if you're using one of those Bibles at your seat. We are in season three of Romans. We've been studying through Romans since the beginning of the year, since January, and we're dividing it up, it's so long, we're dividing it up into seasons. And season three of Romans is about chapters nine through 11. And chapters nine through 11 of Romans stretches our brains and our faith more than any other section of, of Romans. And so as we go into this this morning, I wanna remind you of two things. First, I wanna remind you of the purpose Paul laid out for Romans nine through 11. We, we see it actually back in verse six of chapter nine. It, he said, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Paul is intent in these chapters to show God's faithfulness in keeping his promises, in particular, his promise to work through the people of Israel when, you, when we look from the outside and it seems like that's not really happening the way God laid it out. Paul is he's intent on saying no, God, God is keeping his word, and let me explain how that, that's happening. That's what the purpose of nine through 11 is. The second thing I wanna remind you of is the floaty that I introduced to you two weeks ago if you were here, and this holds us up in the deep end when we're, when we're having a hard time reconciling 
things, and, and here's the floaty. Trusting God is our stability in unresolvable tension. So there are sometimes we run up against these unresolvable tensions in scripture and we're not gonna be able to unwind them in our own minds, but in the midst of those, we trust God. So we left off with an unresolvable tension in chapter nine when we, when we last left our heroes. Um, God surprisingly chose Jacob over Esau. He chose a younger brother over an older brother through which the line of Israel was going to be counted. And, and Paul says God did that to uphold his purpose of election. So that was some surprising choices God made. Today we're gonna see some more surprising choices that God makes. First, a choice of favor, then a choice of rejection. Let's read, verse, start in verse 14. What shall we say then? <laughs> Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. All right, first, a positive example of God's choice, similar to Jacob, as God extends mercy to Israel. So verse 15, this is quoting Exodus 33. God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It helps for us to understand the context of that quote. That quote comes from Exodus 33. And the scene is after the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, have been released from slavery in Egypt. God intervened in a dramatic way to release them from slavery. He brought them through the Red Sea, and now they are beginning to make their way to the Promised Land, and God has them stop at Mount Sinai so that Moses can come up on the mountain and receive the, the law. God's covenant with his people. So Moses goes up, he's receiving the law, and what do the people do at the base of Mount Sinai while he's up there? They begin to engage in idolatry. They create a, a golden calf to worship, and they say, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. This is the God who saved us. And so there's obviously all this tension. It's like, wow, God just gave them the, the Ten Commandments and all of this law, and they've now broken the top two commandments <laughs> to have no other gods and to not make an idol in the shape of anything that is on, on earth. So they've broken these already. And so the question is, what is God gonna do? Is he gonna say, man, these people do not have it going on. They're, I mean, I just did. Look at all these miracles I just did, and here is what they do. I'm not gonna be able to work with these people. I'm gonna reject them. That's, that's not what he, he says. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
He says, I'm not giving up on these people even though they deserve to have me give up on them. He reaffirms his decision to bring his people into the promised land. He, he exerts mercy. Some, someone has defined mercy as getting, not getting what we do deserve, right? So if we define grace as getting what we don't deserve, God's gracious gifts toward us, mercy is not getting what we do have coming to us, and that's what God demonstrates here. So first, that positive example. Next, we have a negative example of God's choice, like Esau, and this time, the main character is Pharaoh. We're, we're gonna dig into this one a little bit deeper. Verse 17, <coughs> the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. All right, again, we need some, some backstory here. So Pharaoh has, is, is presiding over the people of Egypt and these Hebrew people who've been enslaved now for hundreds of years. And God says, that's enough. Time's up, I'm intervening, and he sends Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. It's time for you to set them free. And Pharaoh says, mm, no, you know, I kinda like the, the free labor, and so I'm not going to let them go. And so, God sends 10 plagues on the people of Israel, and they are 10 plagues ingeniously designed to humiliate the Egyptian gods. I mean, Egypt had dozens, hundreds of gods, but every plague had a meaning, a specific meaning, refuting the power of an Egyptian god. So for example, the first plague, when the Nile was turned to blood, was a spit in the face of Hapi, the god of the Nile, so, so you, God of the Nile, can't protect your water from Yahweh, the true God, turning it into blood, and just plague after plague after plague is, is humiliating the Egyptian gods. So God says that he raised up this Pharaoh to resist his will by design so that the true God, Yahweh, could flex in front of everybody. That's basically what it says here. So that I can show my power that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so a natural question arises from this in Romans 9, 19. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? I mean, another way to ask this is, if God predestined this Pharaoh to resist him so that he could get glory, then is Pharaoh really responsible? I mean, isn't Pharaoh kind of just a pawn in God's hand? I mean, I, th this is a fair question, and I love that Paul goes here. I mean, one thing, I mean, you, you might you know, at times not like Paul or not understand Paul. But one thing you can never accuse Paul of doing is setting up straw arguments to knock down. I mean, this is like 
the million dollar question here. He's going to the heart of responsibility and accountability. He's going to the heart of the question that we started with, who determines my destiny? So before we see how Paul responds to this million dollar question, let's look closer at the context of this quote in verse 17. I told you we were gonna do some work here this morning. I'm gonna ask you to turn to Exodus 9. So if you're using those, those Bibles, Exodus 9 is on page 57. Okay, by the time we get to this point and we get to this quotation, there have been six plagues so far. There's been blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, and boils. And now we get to Romans, I'm sorry, Exodus 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. And I should say um, that when, when Lord is written in all caps like that, it's, ta- it's referring to the, the personal name of the true God. So I'm gonna read it that way. Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. Hapi is not a real God. All these other gods of the Egyptians. Yahweh is, the God of the Hebrews is the true God. Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up. Here's our quote. Here's our quote in Romans chapter nine. For this purpose I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Do you recognize God's mercy here, even in the midst of this? I mean, yes, he's sending a plague, but he's warning them about the plague. I mean, he's saying, like, bring your animals in, stay in, out of the fields, protect yourselves. I mean, he doesn't have to do that. He could just send it. This is mercy. Now, check the response in verse 20. Then whoever feared the word of Yahweh among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. So some people believed, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of Yahweh left his slaves and his livestock in the field. There's always some who are gonna ignore the warning. So the hail comes, strikes down everything that's in the fields, it kills the plants, It kills people, it kills animals. And now Pharaoh's response in verse 27. Go down to verse 27. And Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I've sinned, Yahweh is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. (coughs) Plead with Yahweh, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. 
Moses said to him, as soon as I've gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to Yahweh. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is Yahweh's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear Yahweh, God. And so Moses goes out, he stretches out his hands, the thunder and the hail cease, and then verse 34, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go just as Yahweh had spoken through Moses. So notice here, what does 35 say? No, actually what does 34 say? Pharaoh sinned again, he hardened his heart. Then 35 says, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Um, if, we, if we took the time to read through all of the plagues, what we would see is that three times it specifically says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Six times it's specific that Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then there's several other instances like verse 35 that just simply say Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So now, having done all that background work, let's go back to Romans, Romans 9. And I want to read Romans 9, 18 again. So then God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So here's the question. Did Pharaoh harden Pharaoh's heart or did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Answer, yes. <laughs> see, here's, here's the takeaway. Here's what we see in, in these verses. Trust God in the choices he makes. Seek God in the choices that you make. So trust God in the choices that he makes because clearly God has the prerogative and the power to make a whole lot of choices as, as history unfolds. But seek God in the choices that we make. There are choices that we get to make along the way as well. And, and Paul, <laughs> Paul is referencing this case study of Pharaoh to explore this question of who determines our, our destiny. He, he doesn't fully dissect how God bears a measure of responsibility in hardening Pharaoh's heart, although that, that is clearly there. He, and he still holds Pharaoh responsible to undergo the plagues. But one thing that's very clear here is that Pharaoh at no point along the way is seeking God for the choices that he has to make. I mean, he's just pressing forward and he's just doing his own thing. I mean, we could say that Pharaoh has the plagues coming to him because of all the, the history of enslavement here and his refusal to obey the Lord. We could say that, you know, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh made his choices, he made his bed, and he's, he's got a lie in it. But, but still, we, we read in Romans 9, 17, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up 
that I, God, the true God, might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And then verse 19, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? All right, now it's time for Paul to answer the million dollar question. Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Well, that clears it all up, doesn't it? Wow, I mean, I mean, I mean, honestly, like I, and I, I, I have to tell you, like I consider this the hardest passage in all of scripture because I mean, Paul poses this question that I think is very fair, but he really doesn't answer it. I mean, he really doesn't explain. It's more like a rebuke. <laughs> instead of the explanation that we want, we get a rebuke instead. And what he's saying here, verse 20, who are you to talk back to God? He's saying we are in no position to demand that God explain his actions or his motivations. And we should note here that Paul is not so much rebuking the question as he is the attitude with which the question is being asked, okay? So it's not a problem for us to ask questions of God. I mean, when, when we read through the Psalms, that. Psalms are just gut-level, honest. God, where are you? Why are you taking so long? When are you going to deliver me? I mean, it, it, Psalms ask hard questions. But here, Paul is rebuking the, the attitude. There's an attitude problem. So when it says in verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God, that Greek word answer back is only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's in a conversation between the Pharisees and Jesus, where the Pharisees are challenging him. They are being contentious. And so Paul says here in verse 20, who are you? I mean, who are you, oh man? And he's reminding us who we are, who are asking that question, to. To, uh, to answer back to God. Remember the gulf <laughs> that exists between God and you when you're asking your questions. Demanding answers of God is above your pay grade, okay? Just stay in your lane is basically what Paul is saying here. F.F. Bruce makes this observation. He says, God will not be cross-examined at the judgment bar of a hard and impenitent heart. So here's a word to you this morning. If you are angry with God about something 
And, and this, is a, this is a reality of life, and maybe many of us, if not all of us, get to this at some point in life, when life is hard and difficult, and we question why he is allowing circumstances in our life, and we get, we get angry. If you are angry with God, and if you sense yourself demanding an explanation from him about why he's not intervening differently in your life, then Paul is talking to you here. And he is saying to you and me, be careful of being so upset about trying to find an explanation for the things that you can't control that you miss the agency of making decisions about the things you can control. See, sometimes we get our eyes so focused on on God and you should be doing something that we're not asking the question, God, what would you have me do right now in this situation? And so we take the victim mentality and we just say, there's nothing I can do when there's probably much that we can be doing. Paul, Paul does not offer us a logical explanation here for what God has done, but he does offer us another analogy so let's, let's look at this in verse 20. <laughs> it's an analogy of a potter. It, halfway through verse 20, he says, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? All right, to understand this, we we need to turn again. We're gonna turn to Jeremiah 18 now. This is the last time we're gonna, I told you we're gonna work this morning, all right? This is the last time we're gonna have you turn another place. But uh, Jeremiah 18 is on page 721 of those Bibles at your seat. This is helpful, again, for us to see in its context. It actually sheds a lot of light on on context here. So Jeremiah 18, there's also... Uh, a pottery example in Isaiah. Uh, we won't go there this morning, but this one is really enlightening. All right, Jeremiah 18, one through six. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares Yahweh? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. All right, so far, so far, this is just like Romans. This is God saying, you know what? I'm God, I can do whatever I want. You really got nothing to say about it. But now watch what happens in verse seven. God's still speaking. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, do you see the human choice there? I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Now, therefore, 
Say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says Yahweh, behold, I'm shaping disaster against you, devising a plan against you. He's warning them. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. So God, as the potter, has the right to do whatever he wants. But God is operating in an open system where nations and individuals make choices. And God, God takes those choices into consideration as he makes his choices. So the question remains, does God's sovereignty predetermine people's choices or vice versa? That part, Jeremiah doesn't answer, and Paul doesn't either, and so we're left with a tension, and we hang on to our floaties in the midst of the tension. We trust God. Trusting God is our stability in the midst, in the face of unresolvable tension. If you were here two weeks ago, we, we illustrated that tension using a violin, and we said that the strings on a violin are useless unless they are in tension. You, you can't make music, you really can't make music with, with any instrument unless there is a tension in, involved. But so here's what you and I can do as we live in the tension. We don't have all of it cleared up in our minds, but here's what we can do as we live in the tension. We trust God in the choices he makes. And then we seek God in the choices that we make. There, there are some decisions that God makes that are just, they're just above our pay grade. He is not obligated to explain them to us, and we just need to trust in the end. We trust his character. We trust his character as revealed through the most important event in history, God himself coming to us and offering himself as a sacrifice on our behalf in the person of Jesus Christ. We, we look at God's character of love demonstrated in that act, and so we say, I may not understand all the, the details and the nuts and the bolts of how he works all the time, but I do know this, God loves me and he is, he is working things out for his good purposes. So, so some decisions God makes, we're never gonna fully understand, but many, many, many decisions he leaves up to you and me. And he calls us to take responsibility in those instances, to seek his will, to seek his wisdom, not just to make the decisions on our own, certainly not to make the decisions out of the hardness of our own heart or anger and frustration because he's not doing what we want him to do. We wanna seek his wisdom. How do we do that? Well, Jesus said that he has given us his spirit to live with us, to be in us, to guide us into truth, to comfort us, to direct our steps. Romans 8, what, what does this look like? Look, go back to Romans 8, and, and Romans 8 is all an explanation of how we learn to live with the Spirit in us, how we learn to walk with the Spirit, moment by moment by moment, how we learn to live 
with the, the, the life of Christ in us because the Spirit is guiding and directing each moment. That is a journey, that is a process that we learn because we're, we're having to unlearn doing it all our way. That's, that's, how we, that's what we're born into. That's what we practice usually for, for decades in our lives. And so it takes some learning. It takes some adjusting to say, okay, what does it look like now to yield each of my choices and my decisions to make those choices with the Spirit's input? I know what we've looked at here this morning. There's some tension that's unresolved. I, I know that. But, but here, here are some things that are clear for us, all right? Don't fret over things that are above your pay grade, all right? Just don't, don't, just don't waste time trying to unravel those things that God has not unraveled for us. And for sure, don't be demanding or contentious with God. Completely inappropriate. Paul's so clear here. That is, that is not, he says, stay in your lane, and trust. We trust God in the choices he makes, and we seek God in the choices that we make. Let me, let me just give you a practical way to get a handle on this as we close. You can, you can fill in the blanks for, for this. Maybe you wanna take a picture of this and, and take it with you. I didn't choose blank. There's a whole lot in our lives that we, that we don't choose. I didn't choose blank, but I can choose blank. So what is that for, for you? That, that's a good contemplation question for you as you go. I wanna give you one example from, from my life. Think, something I didn't choose, but I have a choice that I still can make. I've shared with you before, if you've been here, just that my mom really dealt a lot with mental illness. And so I grew up in a home that was very unsafe. And I grew up with a ton of anxiety Grew up with anxiety modeled for me because she, she was never at peace. Um, and then I grew up with an anxiety because of that, because I'm just like, I'm never kind of knowing what the next thing is that's gonna happen. I'm walking on eggshells all the time. So I didn't choose that. I didn't choose to be born into a home with mental illness. I wouldn't have chosen that for my mom. I wish that she didn't have to have dealt with that. So I don't say this in, in anger or anything else. I wish that she didn't have to deal with that. And, and honestly, in my self-centeredness and my preference for comfort, I wouldn't have chosen to be born into that family if it was up to me. But it wasn't up to me. God made that choice for me. So I didn't choose that, but here's, here's what I can choose. I can choose today to take my anxiety to Christ every moment. Every moment it rises in me. Every time I feel fear. Every time I default to the conditioning that I learned when I was growing up to kind of always be looking around the corner and what, I, I'm just not sure what's gonna happen so I'm trying not to set anything off. I can choose not to act out of that, but I can choose to rest in the confidence of knowing that Christ loves me, accepts me fully. Of, of the truth of Romans 8, I can rest in the truth of Romans 8, that because there is no condemnation in Christ, there is no separation for me ever from the Holy Spirit in me. And so I find comfort in that moment by moment by moment. Lots of things that we, we don't get to choose in life. 
but there's a whole lot because of the power of Christ in us that we do get to choose. What is that for you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. <clears throat> um, we, we, Father, we, we express our awe to you because of your sovereignty and your, your wisdom. We confess, God, that we cannot wrap our heads around the wisdom of your plan, <laughs> the ways that you operate, the, the, your purpose in election. Some of these things truly are beyond our ability to be able to understand, but that's pretty, that, that shouldn't surprise us because you are so far beyond us. You, we, we are so finite when you are beyond infinite. So Lord, we're in awe of your greatness. And Lord, we ask your forgiveness for the many times that we demand things of you, that we demand explanations of you, that we take out our anger on you because of things that we can't control and you can. Lord, uh, forgive us for our presumptuousness and help us to come to you in humility, Lord, trusting your heart, trusting your character demonstrated on the cross for us. And then, Lord, help us. Father, please, may we never get so preoccupied with the things that we think you're not doing that we miss the things that we should be doing and the obedience that we should be demonstrating because of what you've called us to. Lord, we pray for your help in all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.